Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special edition of Employment Matters, brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm your host, Pete Waltz. This week, we continue our focus on the biggest issues affecting businesses and organizations globally. That's the spread of COVID-19. And along with bringing you updates on critical events happening all around the world, we're always fortunate to have the chance to bring our local ELA lawyers into the conversation. These good folks are practicing on the ground in these jurisdictions, working daily to help their local clients move through difficult times. Since the outbreak began, we've been getting updates from ELA colleagues all across the globe, initially from China, then Italy and Korea, then across Asia, Europe, Latin America, and back to the U.S. And today we're back in the U.S. checking in with our upstate New York member. Joining us on today's program is Lou DiLorenzo, Chair of the Labor and Employment, Employee Benefits, and Immigrations Practice at Bond, Shenick and King. Lou is joining us from his home in upstate New York. Lou is going to share with us his observations and perspectives with regard to retaliation claims, and as predicted, how they're going to increase based on COVID-19. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Hey, Lou, let's start out with just kind of a general discussion on what should employers be concerned about as it relates to retaliation claims in general. What are some of those challenges? Well, if you look at the statistics this past year, again, the most frequent form of discrimination complaints filed was retaliation claims. And last year, in the, in the wake of the Me Too movement, it's still outdistanced sexual harassment complaints, sex discrimination complaints, race discrimination complaints. I mean, retaliation is just the most frequent discrimination complaint we get. So frequency is one of the things that creates a, a warning for us. The other one is that they're difficult cases to defend. It's one thing to try to convince a jury or a fact finder that somebody's a sexist or a racist. It's a lot easier to convince someone that someone became an enemy of the organization or filed a complaint against the organization or sued the organization or threatened to sue the organization, threatened the organization or, or some of its individuals. It's easier to understand that someone might be angry with them and retaliate against them. It's a basic human function. I mean, our Judeo-Christian culture is built on an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and a stripe for a stripe. I can still remember uh, Michael Dukakis not getting elected when someone asked him if he was against the death penalty, even if the person would have raped and killed his wife, what would he do? And he hesitated. And the American people expect retaliation from a leader. If we're attacked, we expect someone to attack back. So do you think COVID-19 will have an influence on the frequency of claims? I do, for several reasons. First, you know, the, the biggest thing about the return to work, if you look at the surveys of employee feelings about returning to work, you see how many are concerned about the danger. We see nationally our teachers and our teacher unions. We see uh, workers in all forms concerned about coming back to work and the danger. So there's fear and there's unknown. And there's people complaining, there's people requesting to not come back, there's people giving reasons for why they don't want to come back or something that's not safe, some issue associated with that. In addition to those kinds of complaints, which create protected activity for which people cannot be retaliated against, we see the frequency of what we call high-risk transactions in the employment world. The highest risks are laying people off, firing people and refusing to hire people or selecting people to return. So the clip of a million, still a million unemployment insurance claims, new ones a week, these transactions are occurring where people are being let go on some basis for some reason, 
and people are being recalled and some people are not being recalled. So it's high transactions as well as an environment that is rich with the possibility of complaining about danger or other unknown factors that affect their willingness to come back to work. So how about the ability to defend against these claims? I mean, how do employers do that? Well, the best way to be able to defend against a retaliation claim is to have a good reason for the adverse action that you've taken. And to be honest with you, one of the recurring problems I see, you know, before COVID and continuing through COVID is if someone deserved to be terminated, their time had come, they should have been terminated then, not after they engage in protected activity and and it adds to the problems and causes the factual question. To prove a retaliation claim, the person has to prove they're engaged in protected activity, they suffered an adverse action, and there's a causal nexus between the two events. Timing's pretty critical here. Exactly, exactly. So what typically happens is somebody probably deserves to be fired for some past conduct. We gave them another chance or we overlooked it in the interest of uh, working with the employee. And then they engage in some protected activity that upsets us very much, trying to get a group of employees not to return to work because it's unsafe. Talking to a bunch of employees are going on Facebook to talk about how they should be getting hazard pay or more pay for the money and the dangers they're exposed to, or that the equipment they have is not sufficient, the ventilation system is not sufficient. And somebody says, you know what, I've had enough. We gave this person an extra chance. This is not what they do and they decide to fire them or put them on a leave or suspend them or discipline. And as you said, it's a problem with timing. There looks like there's a causal nexus because they happen within a few days or a few weeks of the complaint. If I had a nickel for every time somebody says, look, I I should have, you know, I had reason to fire them earlier. They were involved in theft. They were involved in this situation or that situation. And I say, look, that's not going to help us. What, what actually is going to be proven here is what they did before was more serious than what we're saying caused them to be fired, but we didn't fire them for that. We waited until after they engaged in the protected activity and then sought to fire them. So how does an intervening event figure into the timing of all these things? Well, under my, the way I look at intervening events is someone engages in protected activity, then they engage in an intervening event, and then they suffer adverse employment action. I always try to explain to the plaintiffs and to the court the fact that if timing is important in retaliation cases, the causal nexus, the temporal proximity to the adverse employment action is the intervening event, not the protected activity. The closest thing in time to what happened is the intervening event. By definition, that is closer in time, temporally more proximate to the adverse employment action than it is to the other. So it's an intervening event, something that comes in between the two of them and breaks the nexus. So you want to make sure those are documented, investigated, and, and handled appropriately. So give us an example of a situation where, you know, hypothetically, what kind of an intervening event could it be? How does the whole thing shake out? So someone engages in activity uh, such as during the COVID, they're the leader, they're on television complaining about the inadequacy of our Mass, where say we're a healthcare provider, they go on television, say uh, our hospital's not safe, the workers at this hospital are not safe, we don't have adequate personal protective gear, so on and so on and so on. That's the protected activity under various statutes, including the Families First Act. So there's protection, that's protected activity. Some time goes by, and uh, 
we find out that uh, that particular person has been falsifying their badge in card. They've been having another employee badge in for them when they're not actually at work. And in effect, they've been stealing money, fraudulent time card activity. And they're fired for that. Now, when we fire them and they complain about the retaliation, saying, I got fired because I was the one, I was the face on television of the uh, unsafe conditions at work, we say, no, there was an intervening event between you engaging in protected activity and it was caused by your time card activity, the fraudulent time card activity. What we're going to need to win that case is at least two things. One is proof that we always fire everybody who falsifies their time cards. We have a history of doing that. No exceptions are made. So we want to make sure we enforce the policies that we have along the way for the day that this challenge comes. The second thing is we want to make sure we're not in a situation where we've engaged in what's known as heightened scrutiny. All of a sudden, the person shows up on television and we put the word out, if somebody can get some, something on this employee, we want them fired. And if we typically, for example, give somebody a 30-day suspension the first time they're caught falsifying a time card, but we fired this person, we're going to play into the hands of the fact that this reason, this intervening event that we're using as a valid reason is merely a pretext for the discrimination. It's a false reason. The real reason was the protected activity. So that sounds like a pretty big mistake. What are some of the other mistakes you see in retaliation cases, Lou, that come across your desk? Sometimes we see them from a failure to adequately investigate the situation. We want to make sure when we run through the evaluation of whether somebody should be terminated, if they have engaged in protected FTA, it's one of, the, one of the things I ask my clients to, I keep a list of nine things that I run through anytime somebody wants to fire somebody or engage in serious discipline. And the ninth one is, have they recently engaged in any protected activity? Do we have any knowledge of any protected activity? Because if they do, then we're going to give this, you know, a heightened look in terms of making sure we're imposing the right discipline for what occurred. Secondly, we want to make sure that we've been consistent uh, with how we enforce the policy. We also want to make sure that if there was protected activity in the nature of a complaint, we want to make sure that we adequately address that complaint, whether it was a wage and hour complaint, whether it was a COVID-related complaint. We want, some, we want a documented investigation of that underlying activity and what the conclusion was. Is that necessary legally? No. But to a fact finder, we don't want that open question as to whether we're upset. We want to be able to say, if there was validity to that complaint, we investigated it, we addressed it, and that was a closed book. We addressed that complaint. If the complaint had no validity, we want a good investigation that shows it had no validity, it was a frivolous complaint, and it wouldn't be one that would upset us because, or cause us to engage in this, uh, take adverse action against the person because we investigated it was found to have no merit. So we want to make sure we do that. We want to make sure we give the true reasons for the discipline. We don't want to talk about, well, you know, a year ago you had a terrible record. A year ago you did this. Six months ago you did that. We don't want to be relying on those things. If we condone that activity, forgave it, or imposed some minor discipline, let it go. Even if you probably had justification for firing the person then. Give them the true reason in that meeting so that we don't look like we're changing reasons after we get sued and accused of retaliation. The other thing you want to make sure you do is train supervisors. 
generally, I think supervisors have a better understanding of sexual harassment, sex discrimination, race discrimination, and we do training in those areas. We don't do enough training in the retaliation area. We often don't have a strong enough policy against it. And supervisors have to understand, you know, 30 years ago, supervisors would discourage people from bringing complaints internal. Somebody brought a complaint, they'd say, what are you doing that for? This isn't going to be looked on very well within the company. You're going to be seen as a whistleblower, troublemaker. Now we want our supervisors to understand we welcome those complaints. We would rather have even a frivolous complaint brought to us instead of a union organizer or a union steward or a plaintiff's lawyer or the EOC or the NLRB. We want that internal complaint. We want a chance to evaluate it ourselves. We can always shape a resolution to that complaint that's better than one that's imposed on us from the outside. So we want the chance to do that. We want the chance to investigate it and decide there's no merit to it. We're not going to do anything. Or we want the chance to say, wow, somebody made a mistake here. We have to address this before it becomes more serious. But our supervisors have to know that. These are not, these people that come forward, engage in protected activity, make complaints, are not enemies of the people and they're not to be treated that way. I often think that if I could correlate between the cases that get to our desk as litigation, a correlation between how those were first evaluated when somebody made a complaint to their supervisor or someone else about some activity, and later they suffered adverse employment action. I always think there's a relationship between how the intake was handled and how the person, you know, the lack of keeping it not judgmental, taking it in, expressing thanks to the person could be the worst thing in the world that's going to happen to this supervisor. They now have to deal with this complaint in the middle of all the other things they're asked to do. And there's no tougher job today than to be a supervisor. But we've got to train them, and they have to understand the significance. They have to understand the potential for individual liability here as well for them and others within the company if there is retaliation and that first complaint wasn't handled properly. Lou, this is all great stuff. I think we could talk about this topic again. I'd love to have you come back and we'll drill down deeper on this. But I do want to just kind of wrap up our visit today with your sense of best practices generally around this issue and specifically as it relates to COVID-19. What are your thoughts for the audience? Well, first, supervisory training, as we said, supervisors have to know that they need to pass all complaints on to HR. Let HR, let those be centralized. Let HR make sure they know about them. HR will know what to do with them. They shouldn't be doing this on their, on their own at home. I mean, bring it to HR's attention. We got to investigate them properly. We got to have the right kind of investigative reports when we finish. We got to follow up, document our follow up. We got to avoid references to those complaints. If it's unnecessary to refer to the fact that this person complained about our overtime policy or wage an hour or discrimination or something else a month or two ago, leave it out. It looks like it bothers us. It looks like we're keeping track of it. It looks like we're carrying a grudge. Be careful on employee references. It's a a worrisome area of retaliation where we fire someone, they're suing us, and we get a call from someone and we either give a kind of a dog whistle reference you know, I'd be careful with this person, or there's not much I can say, or not much good I can say. Or we've had some situations where companies have a policy, which they should have, of only giving name, rank, and serial number kind of references. But what they've done is they'll make exceptions for good employees. I, I'm a maintenance supervisor. I got a terrific employee who, has to, who tells me he's going to quit because he's got to move to Texas to take care of his mother who's dying of cancer. 
I get a call and the good reference checkers don't call HR, they call the super, former supervisor. They call and the supervisor says, well, I've got a, we've got a policy, I'm not supposed to get references out, but this guy's a terrific guy. So then, the, then we get a call, same supervisor, three months later, about an employee that we fired who filed a human rights complaint against us. And he says, so you got to talk to HR. I'm not allowed to say anything about anybody. And if they have proof of those two calls, that he's given that other reference out, and in some cases they've been taped. The first one was a setup. If they give out that second reference, we no longer have a policy we can hide behind. We're selectively enforcing it, and it appears to be retaliation. We gave the bad reference to the person that was suing us. So you want to make sure you're, you have a policy, and you want to make sure your supervisors know they're not allowed to make exceptions even for a good reference for someone, because that's considered a benefit of employment, and it's being granted to people who didn't sue us, but not to people who sued us. Obviously, we always want to treat similarly situated employees in the same manner, and as I said earlier, there's a time to hire someone. Everybody has a time to be hired, and unfortunately, a lot of people have a time to be fired. When that time comes, and the person's employment is done, and you in your gut know, I should fire this person now, fire them now. Because when you don't, there's so many regrets about missing that opportunity and not doing the right thing when it appeared. And then later, it's just fraught with problems because now we've got a situation where we didn't fire him for a very serious event. And when we go to fire him for something less serious, it appears that the intervening event of protected activity is really the reason and not the uh, just cause that we had for the termination. Lou, sage advice as always, longstanding member of the ELA and you got a great voice for radio. Thanks for joining us today, my friend. Nice talking to you again. Take care. If you'd like to connect with Lou DiLorenzo from Bond, Schenck, and King or any of our lawyers around the world, just search for them on the ELA website at ela.law. Just go to the big Find a Lawyer widget in the center of the page, click on the drop-down box. There you can also sign up to receive invitations for upcoming webinars, download white papers, get access to on-demand content, or use the ELA's exclusive Global Employer Handbook. You've been listening to Employment Matters, a podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm Pete Waltz. Thanks for listening.